Hello and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to a guest that's already been on the show, Dan Stanton, who's the editor at Bioprocess International and the managing editor at Xconomy. However, this time it's going to be a little bit different. Rather than me asking Dan the questions, given Dan's uh, journalistic skills and experience, we thought we would turn the tables and allow Dan to host the show and ask me some questions. We'll find out in the next 20 minutes if that was a terrible decision or not. So Dan, over to you. Thank you very much, Roman. It's uh, a spoiler alert. It almost certainly is a terrible decision. <laughs> How, however, look, I'm, I'm honoured to be invited back and I'm really honoured to be um, in the position of um, uh, asking you and annoying you and trying to get you to divulge some of your most um, uh, personal and private secrets. Hey, look, um, I've known you and I've worked with you and I've, I've drank with you pretty much since my career as a biopharma journalist began. Um, and then after years of you plying with me with industry leaders and C-suite folk to interview, um, I'm finally getting to interview you. So I'm very excited. So <laughs> I guess let's let's begin at the beginning, as they say. Um, tell me about um, your upbringing. I mean, obviously, from your dulcet tones, you um, come from the northeast of England. But um, what was your what was your upbringing like? So. I was brought up in Newcastle, if it uh, in the northeast of England, which is uh, is no one in the UK is surprised by when they hear my my accent. Although it does confuse quite a lot of people in the US. Um, so I am the youngest of three brothers, and we grew up in the west end of Newcastle. My parents ran a post office for many years, um, and I was working in that post office. I think when I was eight, so there was no kind of nice, pleasant upbringing where you didn't have to do anything. There was no silver spoon or anything like that. Um, so we, we as my brothers and I were very used to working and, and from a very young age and actually just seeing our parents working um, and going to work and having to work and, and you know, and, and give us a really good standard of life um, in our kind of early childhood. But I had a very happy upbringing, I'm pleased to say, you know, there was no huge issues or anything like that. And um, had a good school life, made lots of friends. And uh, yeah, that's kind of it. And obviously, being from the Northeast, you know, football and or soccer to to the, the, the Americans is, is a huge part of, of my DNA and still is today of being a, a big Newcastle fan and, uh, you know, and having played football for many years as well before I got old and had millions of injuries just like yourself, Dan. <laughs> yeah, age is a great thing. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, the fact that you kind of, um, you were forced, to, I wouldn't want to say forced to work um, from an early age, but you actually... Um... Pretty, no, no, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much yeah. You had the work ethic instilled in you from an early age and you could really kind of, uh, I, I, I would like to think that that has um, stayed with you because... Um, you know, going through your teenage years and through university, um, jumping into the workforce, um, what, 11 years ago now, um, you went out alone and set up remarketing. Um, I think stealing yeah. from your um, <clears throat> from your LinkedIn profile, um, <laughs> uh, you set it up in uh, your spare bedroom at the time. 
That's you're, true. Yeah, <laughs> you're slightly more successful than that now. But um, let's go back to the year 2009 when um, you know we only had the global recession to worry about rather than the viral pandemic. <laughs> what 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 actually led you to go it alone? You know, a lot of people work in the communication space, marketing space, and they will spend a full career working for large companies or small companies, but really kind of working away. What, why, how did you end up setting remarketing up? So interestingly enough, I, there was no great plan. There's a, there's a phrase within agency owners called the kind of accident, accidental agency owner. And I am very much one of those people. So I'd spent the first um, seven, eight years of my career working within kind of communication agencies and then for a contract manufacturing company. So I, just by chance, actually, I ended up in the pharmaceutical kind of sector, learning about clinical trials and CMOs and different technologies. And when 2009 came about, I was actually working for um, a company called the Specials Laboratory in the UK, which um, was then sold and basically within that business was a CDMO business called SCM Pharma. And those businesses were separated. And I went to work for SCM Pharma, which you can probably remember back in the day, I used to spam your inbox with, <laughs> with good quality, may I add, good quality press releases. And, uh, and so at the time, um, I was kind of doing some work with Specials Lab as part of the transfer agreement that certain skills they would retain. And when that transfer agreement stopped as part of the acquisition, the managing director of Specials Lab, um, Sharon Griffiths, who's still managing director there today, just said to me, hey, can, can you just look after our PR and look after our website and just do it in your spare time? And I was like, Okay, cool. That sounds that sounds fine. And I remember, I distinctly remember coming back to you know a two bedroom flat in, in Gateshead and, and speaking to my wife and saying, "Do you think I should do this?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's a no brainer. You know, I can earn I don't know ten grand more in a year, which is a huge amount of money at, at the time." And we figured that would fund um, more travel, quite frankly, to go go and see the world. So it was it was started by both an opportunity an opportunity and i'm and i'm really proud genuinely to say that specials lab are still a client 11 years later uh, and i i certainly wouldn't have had the career in the life that i'd ha- i've had to this day without without um, sharon and jan and, and lee the, the team there who trusted me in in doing that um but i certainly didn't envisage what it what it's become today and uh and w- when i started in 2009 it was just me right it was just a freelance gig doing this on the side and and um i actually remember distinctly and uh, my wife my wife reminded me of this a few weeks ago um i went to a stag do uh, or a bachelor party for for north americans of a friend of really good close friend of mine in uh in the in the south of south east of france spirits which i don't think is too far away it's the other side from from where you are dan um and i remember taking my laptop on the bachelor party because i was so you know i had articles to write in web web copy and i remember being at the airport and everyone's having a pint and i was like what are you doing and i was i was genuinely working i worked on the airplane all all the way and while you know we were still having fun um and i and my wife had to remind me of that because often you know you kind of forget the kind of early effort that you have to put in in order to kind of create something. Um, and I was fortunate because while I was doing that job, I was also still at SCM Pharma as their kind of head of marketing. And then a couple of years passed, 
while I was doing this dual role and I picked up a couple of other clients. Um, and then that was the point, actually, it was in 2011, which was the middle of 2011, where it went from being this kind of side gig that had become more important to actually, I physically left my job, which was only down to two days a week at the time, but I left SCM and they became a client. And uh, yeah, that that was when the real, the journey became started to become a little bit more real in 2011 because I had a couple of staff members by then. And so the pressures and responsibility of of that are, are slightly different when it's it's not just just yourself. So, I mean, you, you are an entrepreneur by the definition of the word, but I guess from what you're telling me there, it it was never a set strategy. It just kind of fell into place or it was very opportunistic. Is Would that be fair to say um, how, um, oh, how, how you built it up? Yeah, completely. And, and the entrepreneur thing, it's, it's an interesting word because I've never, ever thought of myself as an entrepreneur in the in that sense, in that, you know, the stereotype of setting up lots of businesses. I was just, I had a, I had a technical skill. I was good at doing, whether it be PR or marketing communications, and I was able to take that into, into a business. Um, ha- having said that, you know, when you look back at your life and you kind of, people, people label you as an entrepreneur and you think maybe, maybe that there is an element that I was. And a friend of mine reminded me recently that I, I used to sell <laughs> confectionery and and clothes at school, actually. So I obviously had something in me because I used to sell um, designer clothes at school to other students, like when I was 15. And I had, when the vending machine was out of order, uh, me and, and another guy in the, in the year were the go-to suppliers of crisps and Kit Kats <laughs> and things like that. So um, my my mum was my supplier. Uh, of, of goods um but you know in a bizarre way I probably you know at a very young age learned some basics about running a business and cost of goods and making profit and stuff like that which I only look back now you know 25 years later and go like oh actually that probably did me some good but you know at the time you never think it's going to be become part of uh you know your adult life and and almost help define who, who you are and what what you become in life I mean that goes all the way back to um, where we started at the beginning with the with your upbringing and working um, working at the post office, selling sweets and stuff at school, and just gaining all these life skills in a very uh, informal or unconscious sort of sense. And you know, um, the best of us have great ideas, or the best of us has talents in certain areas. But to put those together and then to develop a business is a whole another skill. So let's um, you know. Let's jump forward from selling up and having a couple of staff members to having a you know two offices um, in the UK and then a third one pop up in Boston, the US, making that transatlantic leap. How yeah. much of a milestone was that for both remarketing and for you personally? Oh, I th- the, the the US presence is something that I think. I would I would never have dreamt of in in the early days. It was never something on on the radar. Um, and you know, f- for a few years, we did from twenty eleven to twenty fifteen. We always had a core of pharma related, pharma biotech, life science related clients, but we did all kinds of other stuff as well. So we worked with we we launched a TV channel. We launched um, we worked with bars and restaurants and retail and leisure. So we always had. A real mix of, of work and then in 20 
end of 2015, sometime in 2016, we decided just to focus on on the life science space. And um, and that ultimately led, that process led us to international business. Um, I always tell the story, um, I can't remember if I ever told you this, Dan, but the first client we ever won internationally was a company in Denmark. And I remember putting the pricing document together and, and taking the client through it on the call. And I mean, the, the price of the whole, the entire project was £12,000. And at the time, it's we were like, oh my God, we can't, we cannot believe we're charging them this <laughs> amount of money. It is crazy. But anyway, we won the business and, you know, we went off to um, the client and meet them and stuff like that. And, I, you know, the, the guy that chose us, you know, you know, once you get past that and you become a, a client and a confidant and, you know, you have a drink together and you, you ask questions and, he he said they nearly they nearly didn't choose us because we were too cheap. He was like, <laughs> and and it was a real penny dropping mo- penny dropping moment for me in a understanding the value of what we did technically, but also the sector that we worked in. That that client was willing to pay a premium for someone that knew the sector, and that that insight was was one of the reasons that we we decided to specialize. Um, and also just around that time as well, we did an analysis of the business in. And actually, we just really liked our pharma clients and the life science clients. It's not that we had bad relationships with anyone else. It was just, we just, if we did, you know, we looked at the nature of the people in the industry and, you know, you work in the sector. There are a lot of nice people in this industry. It's not too cutthroat, you know, compared to other sectors. And people are generally pretty friendly and want to do a good job. And their kind of moral compass is generally pointing in the right direction and that that alongside other factors or you know, commercial factors of, hey, this is a, a good sector to be in from a financial perspective and particularly one that was relatively recession proof, which, I mean, <laughs> you know, with the coronavirus outbreak at the minute, I mean, it's a, while most sectors in the world are really struggling, pharma and biotech actually is one sector that is standing pretty strong. And so, again, that was one of the reasons that we've picked a more safe sector, but obviously we all already had domain expertise. That was the key thing as well. Um, so actually, I don't think I actually answered your question properly, which is the how well, it felt in, about the US. Well, I think it, I think it, you, you, you've started on the path there. I think um, it sounds like um, by moving away from covering uh, or working with whatever industry um, came to you and specialising in the pharma space, it opened the doors to a more international business. Um, and maybe Absolutely. I'm word in your mouth here, but um, it's... That's exactly you know, what it did. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it did, Dan. It, all it did is it opened our eyes. And I was really fortunate to get some support from uh, the, the Department of Trade and Investment in the UK at the time who who were kind of pushing Northeast companies and, and UK companies across the board to think about international markets. And so it, it was just a perfect storm maybe of we working in a global sector and we'd already had a little bit of success abroad. And um, and that that led to opportunity, opportunities actually that, that landed on our on our laps, actually, which was two U.S. companies who wanted to do some work in Europe and they had identified us as an agency and we ended up winning both projects. So within the space of a few months, I think, we went from having zero U.S. sales to 30% of our business was U.S. sales in a very short space of time. And that was the, oh, there's, there's some big place over there, <laughs> over the Atlantic Ocean that we should probably go visit. And that was probably the the origins of, of how we ended up kind of opening an office in the U.S., simply the opportunity that, that exists over here. 
I, I think um, as well the pharma industry, at least the um, the, the supply, the manufacturing chains, um, it's very global compared to other industries. If you look at the food industry, everything is done regionally or locally even. Um, but you know, there's a factory in Singapore that's making every monoclonal antibody for a certain disease for the whole world. So there is that global element that um, makes the pharmaceutical uh, industry stand out a little more. Um, did you find it difficult um, getting into this industry? You know, we talked, you, you spoke about how friendly it is and how, um, how, how nice the people that you work with um, are, but mm -hmm. it's a very specific very scientific very technological space to mm -hmm. be in if you don't have um that sort of background and i know you have worked for um life science firms in, in the past but um like me we don't have training so, yeah in microbiology for example <laughs> thank god for that um <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a really interesting question and i have to say um you know one of the things that certainly companies look for is people that particularly in the marketing world what they're interested in is is ideas and creativity because that's something that doesn't necessarily sit with your classic scientist obviously there's creativity within science obviously but you know bringing a creative ideas visionary view to whatever a company is trying to achieve is is different from the norm. I always remember one of our, our second clients, who's still a client today, um, Denise, who's the commercial director there, said to me once, she said, if I wanted a scientist, I would use one of my own team. I actually need someone that can market my business for me. And that, that was the kind of thing that if you had enough of an understanding of how the sector works and how what the buyers are looking for, that's actually more powerful than understanding the the entire science and obviously in the time I've spent in the industry I've picked up a lot along the way much much like yourself um that kind of helps you kind of during that process like understanding different dosage forms or technologies but actually having an understanding of what's going on in the market and what the buyers are looking for is actually probably the skill that that I suppose that I've able to bring to the to the table which has been quite useful for for some clients in the, in the kind of past 10 15 years or so I think you may have hit the nail on the head there. Uh, you know, as you said, um, you're not a scientist, um, but they don't want scientists. They 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 do the science, they do the technology, and they do that very well. But to actually get that across or to um, get it in their communications, they need someone who, with very different skills. And I think what you're alluding to is, you know, you have those skills and you're able to do that. Um, I'm very intrigued because um, you've, you've mentioned twice now customers that you had from the very early days back in 2009, 2010 that you still have. What um, what what do you think sets remarketing apart from other comms and PR agencies? What allows these customers to um, to stay with you um, over well over more than a decade now? That's a great question, and you know, I I've thought long and hard about this, and I, and there isn't there is not one one specific thing. I think I think with the relationship that's lasted that that length of time, a business relationship that's length you know lasted over, over a decade, there's an element of trust and um, relationship 
of just simply always being there when the client needs. I think that is fundamental and it's, it's, it's actually not too different from a friendship. I would say, you know, w- within working with clients because we, you know, the, the nature of the work that we do with our customers is you get a real, you know, you, you look under the hood of these co- companies, so you get to see the good and bad. So a level of trust is built at a very early stage. So I think, yes, you have to deliver against whatever is set. So whether that is, you know, generating more leads or, you know, getting PR coverage or, or you know, social media followers or reaching new markets, there's the, the tangible stuff, which is one core element. And obviously having that sector knowledge is, is an important part. But the other one, I genuinely put down to just good, good old fashioned, genuine relationships with people. And, um, and it is something that, I absolutely take for granted that I've been able to do naturally throughout my entire life. I find it really easy to meet new people and build relationships. It's never a problem. And I think that's probably been part of our DNA. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of with remarking is it's not just been me. You know, we have a team of nearly 40 people now. And uh, one of the nicest things someone said to me recently was, did over the time, I think six years they'd worked with us, they'd had three different account managers just within our business and they all still work for us. And uh, it's, a, it's a client in Spain and he said, they all bring the same energy. They all bring exactly the same energy that you bring. And I, I have no idea how we've been able to do that. Like I, 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 have, I genuinely can't bottle that and sell that. I wish I could because I think that's a very powerful thing um, to bring to any business. But that sense of you know, bringing energy and just simply caring about the client, I think is probably differentiate us from others. Not to say our competitors don't do that. So it's not my style to badmouth anyone else, but I just think we've done that particularly well. And ultimately that's built really long lasting relationships with clients where even when things haven't worked out, we, we do not fall out with people. We don't burn bridges or anything like that. I'm still very good friends with clients that I used to work with that are not customers today because you know, life's short, right? And uh, it's, you know, and business is business, but it's, you know, ultimately it's still in, in what we do. And, and to an extent, obviously what you do, Dan, is you just work with people and build those relationships. And just because you don't agree on something or it doesn't quite work out, doesn't mean you have to fall out as people. I think that's a very short-sighted view of, of looking at uh, kind of relationships and contacts and networks in, in any industry. Well, I think I'm getting quite reflective here because uh, I, I'm thinking what you're saying there about being able to, uh, you know, treat your clients as friends and such, and you're very good at at making relationships. And I'm thinking I'm not great at doing that. And is that why I'm a journalist and, and you know, <laughs> not an entrepreneurial uh, communications expert? Who knows? You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I, I'm very intrigued, though, because obviously I, I've, I've worked with you for, um, well, since you <laughs> since you launched Remarketing. I've yeah. worked with a lot of other PR and comms teams, too. Um, uh, remarketing style, your style of working with the press is um, very different to most of um the other companies that um i deal with um hopefully in a good way <laughs> definitely in a good way um <laughs> how do you see journalists how do you see them um how, how, what 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 is your 
what are your views on the relationship that you need to have or your clients need to have relation with journalists to um to grow and to develop and to um uh, strengthen their businesses so that is a, a really interesting question and what it kind of what comes to mind was in my first ever job kind of out out of university i did a a kind of communications module um, at Northumbria University while I was working. And one of the first modules was working with journalists. And there was like a set of tips effectively. And that that set of tips I wrote down, I typed up and I printed out and I stuck on my desk. And actually I think that remained on my desk for about 10 years. I mean I don't I don't necessarily do it as much and maybe some of it is intrinsic, but and I can't remember them all, but it was it was things like, you know, if you if you say you're going to deliver something for a journalist, then make sure you do. So meet meet the deadline um, don't harass the journalist. Don't send them something that is deemed um, overly salesy. Send them informative and actually don't annoy them. And there was a set of rules. I think there was about 10, which were pretty much all around respecting the journalist. And if I look back now, those rules are actually pretty transferable to clients. So in a weird sense, one thing that I did without really thinking about it was I used to almost put journalists on a pedestal, right? I used to think, oh my God, these journalists, like you, you can't, you know, <laughs> you can't, you can't upset them, right? That was my domain, like whatever happens, don't piss the journalist off. That was my number one thing, right? And so... I think in that sense, what I then did is basically try to do my very best for, for the journalist in sense of not sending them terrible stuff and actually just being responsive and actually helping them out and just being a really useful resource. And I think in the early days, I was able to build really good relationships with um, not just trade journalists, but regional journalists and national journalists, just purely based on that approach. Um, what I suppose kind of is, is great now is, you know, just my rules change within remarketing. I'm not, I don't really do much of the kind of traditional um, kind of uh, media selling or the, the media relations now. And, um, you know, Lindsay, who looks after that, that part of our team now has done a, an incredible job of, of taking that essence. And she, she comes from a very similar school of uh, kind of thought, if you like, in terms of how to deal with journalists and actually then making sure that, as we've brought people into our business and you could probably speak to this better than anyone, Dan, that actually most remarketing people, if not all that have dealt with the media have a sense of consistency about them. So they're not, you know, just because someone's new to the business, you're getting a very different feel. Um, I think, and ultimately that comes down to the culture that I think we've been able to build at remarketing, which is probably the, the most positive aspect of the business, which is just a way of doing things. Um, and that's probably reflected in, the way we treat anyone, uh, journalists being included with a sense of respect and, you know, living to our values of just being likable and being nice to people. And, and, you know, it's not that complicated in the grand scheme of things, but, but actually delivering. So if you say to a journalist, Hey, we're going to have that article with you by next Friday, make sure it is actually make sure it arrives on Thursday and make that job easier, make that life easier is the kind of, the general premise i think of what the, the kind of methodology behind it i mean if you could dig out that list and send it to every other pr company <laughs> it would make my life a hell of a lot easier it would probably not be great for your business but for my for, for, for myself and other journalists um that sort of essence or that sort of ethos 
um, is is you know music to our ears. Um, I'm gonna I'll, I'll have it somewhere. You know, <laughs> I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure one of my teams probably got a copy of it somewhere, and they may have photocopied it. But I'll I'm gonna try and dig it out and send you it at some point. Um, on a similar vein, well, a slightly different vein. Um, I, I'm intrigued because, um, like, a, like I've alluded to, I do work with a lot of PR companies um, as well as remarketing. But um, I, I see quite a difference in cultures um, between US or North American-based PR companies, communication companies, and um, British communication um, companies. And it, maybe it's because I am uh, I'm British that, um, that that I notice this, um, but. I do see personally a big difference there. And I'm wondering if now you've moved over to the States and you've got a base there, you see um, US businesses running very differently to UK businesses when it comes to communications. Yeah. And I, and I don't actually think it's just communications actually in, in from a media relations and in, in content perspective. Um, much of what we do is is broader than that in terms of kind of brand strategy and digital strategy. And I think all in all, you definitely, I've definitely seen a big difference between um, not necessarily what works in North America, but the style is is very very different. So from a from a from a brand and a creative perspective, I think particularly in the UK, but I would maybe stretch that to Europe. There tends to be a bit more um, risk taking, and what I mean by that is, you know, if I present five creative concepts to a UK company, UK based company, I suggest, I, I, I predict, sorry, they will go for maybe five being the riskiest and one being the most conservative. I think they'll probably go for three or four. Now in the US, they'll go for one and two. They'll go for the more conservative style, which is really interesting because that's not necessarily what I would have thought was the way it would, it would be. So that's, that's certainly from a, a creative perspective, some of the insight that I've that I've seen while I've while I've been over here, and then from a communications perspective, obviously I don't necessarily deal with other other agencies, but I mean I obviously see the nature of of what's produced by other companies, and you have I, clients who's obviously worked with different companies at, um, yeah. uh, at different times, so yeah, and then, and some you know some other agencies that we come across are excellent, and there's some amazing other companies out there, and it's not just us doing a, a good job. And um, but at the same time, you know, I see, I can I can always spot an agency that has added a media relations element, like as a, as an afterthought, and you can tell by the nature of their content being overly long, overly promotional, um, incredibly, you know, they'll use a million adjectives in a, in a piece of communication, which is just completely annoying for the journalist because they just want the information, right? It needs to be, you know, I always remember the five kind of W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why, I think that's, uh, maybe I missed one, but like keep it really succinct. And I think that conciseness of language and just getting to the point, I think is, is something that um, certainly that we as a business do do really well um, in terms of our PR content for clients. And I think I've seen certainly instances in the US, particularly when you're dealing with um, uh, like kind of technology companies or listed companies that are trying to get investments. So the kind of investor relations type releases, the first paragraph can be like 10 lines in two sentences. And I'll be like, that that makes no sense to anyone in the world. So why, why make it so complicated? But I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just my perception, and you you might have a very different view <laughs> than me. 
and I think your 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 perception is is pretty um, on the money there because um, I I, <laughs> I do um, internally at least judge my the the communications that I get from various um, agencies, and yeah, there is a um, <laughs> the tendency to overcomplicate or um, to overpromote is. Um, Ah, a pain in my backside, um, as much as I wanted. But um, I, I do while think. That... While, while we're on the call, I've actually I just had a quick look and I've I've found my tips. I have seven tips that I've found with dealing with the media. Do you want me to tell you what they are? I do. I just want to um, uh, just on that last point, though, very quickly because uh, you know something's come to my mind and it's obviously very important. Um, but you, you spoke about the risk aversity in the US um, from well both a comms and general business point of view. And mm-hmm. it just reminded me of, um, you know, the pharma industry in general. There's definitely a uh, the U.S. and North America, while they obviously lead the world when it comes to drug development and uh, um, and uh, pharmaceutical production and such. Um, they have historically been behind in many of the um, um, technologies and the modalities that are coming through at the moment. So if you look at biosimilars or if you look at single-use technologies, while they're part of the landscape in the US now in North America. They, um, it took a long time for um, the US to um, adapt to those, both the technology and the modality there. And mm-hmm. Europe really paved the route. And I, I'm not sure if that's because of um, them being risk averse or if there's some sort of, uh, um, you know, as there always is in the US, a legal complication. But I think it's really interesting that you see that as well from um, your side of things. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it, I think it could be industry specific because I look from the te- like a tech sector here, and if you look at you know Silicon Valley and the businesses that have come out of you know some of the biggest brands in the world have come from the the biggest brands in the world actually are originate in the US, so it's not like innovation and risk taking doesn't exist here. I mean, far from it. I mean, actually, one thing I love about being in the US is there's a huge respect towards entrepreneurs and founders. There's a real sense of celebration. Um, and one thing I learned a couple of months after moving here was to, you know, to to label myself as a founder of a business and people really respect that and they are so intrigued by it because it's almost, dare I say, like the American dream, right? Like creating something from nothing and actually creating jobs and wealth and employment. It's unbelievably well celebrated and uh, here, which I think one of the reasons I actually really enjoy living in the US that it's kind of I don't I don't see that same level of um, celebration or respect in the UK and obviously I can't speak for the rest of Europe but I I love that energy around entrepreneurship and creating something and growing something that that the you know US counterparts seem to seem to really like. I think you're right I think Europe and especially the UK suffers from tall poppy syndrome and if you you know if you if you're the founder or an entrepreneur, it's very easy to be knocked down in 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 Europe for for that. And I'm not quite sure the um, politics or the philosophy behind that. But um, in the states, as you say, there is this um, innovation, there is this technology. It's just I don't know. In the the farmer industry is in many ways very traditional, very conservative compared to to Europe there. And maybe that's just the threat of litigation, or or maybe there's something else going on. But, True. Um, hey. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry I cut you off there in your prime. There, you're about to go through these key points in um, uh, yeah in dealing with journalists, and I, for one, am waiting desperately now to hear them. So, over so to the you. one that what I what I wrote was um, there was seven seven timeless tips 
because uh, I took the content, I took that list and I made them made them into a blog, which I'm sure we can find online somewhere and share it in the show notes. But number one was be timely. So, you know, get back to journalists quickly and don't annoy and hassle them. Uh, number two is be honest. Don't squirm away when a when a journalist is asking you for, for something. There's nothing worse than providing misleading or inaccurate information. Uh, number three is be relevant. Like, you know, pitch the right type of story to the a relevant journalist. So don't pitch them something that um, is completely irrelevant. So that's kind of tailoring, say, press releases or media content for a, a typical uh, for a specific audience. Be responsive, which you know, like you know, especially in a crisis situation or when journalists are dealing with a tight time frame, get back. Uh, be able to write, so don't put spelling mistakes and grammatical errors, which will just you know annoy the journalist. And one final one was be nice, which was um, <laughs> just simply respect journalists and keep you cool and be professional. Um, and actually, it, uh, it's strange that I found this blog because actually the final one was treat media contacts like clients, which I completely forgot until, but it's, that's what I said to you, I think, a few moments ago. So um, it's obviously somewhere in my kind it's of brain. To you. Yeah, if, you know, know, build that relationship, provide value with them, and it's as simple as that. So, um, yeah, and I think that probably reflects how we've dealt with the media over the year in terms of from the editorial perspective um, and maybe why we've managed to build, you know, a, a, a good team and a good reputation and all that type of thing. Well, look, um, I'm noticing the time and we are um, running close to the end here, but I do have a couple more questions. Um, essentially, what's next for remarketing now that you've um, conquered the US, shall we say? Uh, I'm not sure we've conquered the US <laughs> just yet. I'm trying to pick um, you up here, but you know, you've made it on the East Coast at least. Are we talking West Coast? A- Are we talking further expansions? Well, you know, it's it's the timing's really interesting because we're at a interesting journey for our business and obviously with the coronavirus still impacting the world it's kind of there's just so much uncertainty around the travel around you know just simply doing business getting to events and all that type of thing so we've almost had to take a bit of a pause on the longer term strategy but you know if 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 I could you know wave a magic wand and find a vaccine for coronavirus and then everyone gets back to normal you know i would love remarketing to become um even more global so i'd love an office in or a presence in asia and on the west coast and elsewhere in the world and um you know and i and i did have a kind of a dream's not necessarily the right word but like a vision of of creating a business that was headquartered in newcastle that was um had team all over the world but actually had its heart and soul um, and its roots very much in in the northeast of England, where I'm from, and that's something that I was, uh, I, you know, I'm very proud of now. But I think I'll be even more proud of in the future as we continue to grow and employ people and create wealth and create opportunity for ourselves, but also our clients. You know, one of the things that we have done as a business, which is incredibly um, satisfying, is we we've helped companies grow and employ people. And you know, if you if you look at someone like um, you know, you'll know um, Symbiosis here in uh, in Scotland. You know, when we first started working with, with Symbiosis, they had 18 staff and, you know, they're nearly at 100 staff now, um, you know, five, six years later. Now, obviously, that's not down to just us, but we have been part of that story. You know, that's 80 
or so jobs created in in Scotland that has impacted families uh, in a very positive way. It's impacted the family in a positive way, and I think you know that's something I'm always um, uh, that I like to communicate to our staff when they first join us, which is, hey, you might be you know designing a website or writing a press release or you know recording a podcast, but actually the ripples that we create can actually really impact people um you know down the line when our clients grow and and, and you know take more people on and and that's something that i think uh, that'll never go away um, but I, I love the idea of like we are now becoming a more global agency um but still having our roots very much very much in the tune <laughs> well look um i mean that's a fascinating insight into remarketing um i do have um, a couple of piffy well questions i want to ask you um (laughs) well first of all um if you weren't doing what you're doing what would you wish you were doing oh i'd be a footballer all day (laughs) what position i just i think i think i'd be like a a, a, like a number 10 like a creative behind the striker type type of type of player so like uh someone like ericsson who who plays for inter Milan now who's just a he's pulling the strings you know small small player and i wasn't very good by the way i mean i'm not i'm not kind of painting a picture that i was some fantastic footballer but i i do love football and i wish you know i always thought i was going to be a footballer and uh that, that's certainly one and the other one that i think um as i I think I could have been a personal trainer because I'm I'm so into health and fitness and nutrition as the older the kind of the older that I'm that I'm getting and I think helping people with their lifestyle. I mean, I I bug the hell out of certain team members and give them advice on stuff like that, and it's often not well received. But nevertheless, um, <laughs> I do I do like the kind of um, the thought of actually helping people with their health and fitness and keeping them healthy and alive for longer. I think that's a that's a great thing to potentially do for people. Well, I, I need to tap you up to know how to go from <laughs> 10K to the half marathon, but I think that's um, the subject of a whole different podcast. Um, I'm going to get you to do a marathon one day. That's, that's, <laughs> that's it. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I do have a few more questions that I would like to ask, but I think we should probably leave it there on that note. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, Thank I hope you. the listeners find this insightful. It's been really insightful from my point of view. And it's it's actually nerve it's nerve wracking when you're on this side, which I now fully appreciate <laughs> having interviewed many guests and kind of told them to calm down and just like enjoy the conversation. But when someone's firing questions at you, it can be a little bit nerve wracking. But yeah, thanks for um, thanks for doing this. And you know, I think the the, the listeners know that I'm. I am Dan Stanton's biggest fan, so I'm uh, I'm so kind of I'm so pleased and proud of what you're doing in your career, but also you know what you know we've become good friends over the years, and that's something that I'm that I cherish very very much, and I love the fact that you have taken the time um, to to come on to the podcast again, and uh, you know and fire loads of questions at me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, um, stay safe and look forward to hearing more about remarketing going forward. Thanks, Dan. And for our listeners, thanks for tuning in again. I hope you found that useful and we will speak to you very soon. Bye. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. 
Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.